Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alex Murrah, and I'm joined today by Anya Morozov. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We are a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today we are talking with Shalisa Gladney. Shalisa is a graduate at the University of Iowa with degrees in communications and gender, women's, and sexuality studies. Within her many roles as an educator, advocate, and doula, she is passionate about community activism, consent, education, and addressing and ending violence, especially in communities of color. She specializes in providing postpartum care with survivors of various forms of trauma and providing education and resources to other birth workers about the importances of incorporating consent into their practices. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and today Shalisa is here with us to talk about her work, the importance of consent, and ways to advocate for domestic violence survivors. Welcome to the show, Shalisa. Hello, I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So just to get us started, we kind of want to know a little bit more about your path to where you currently are. So right now, I think your main role is that you're a coordinator of the Afro-American Cultural Center, um, but some of your past experience has been with the Rape Victim Advocacy Program at the UI. So can you just tell us a little more about your path and how you ended up in your current role? Yeah, for sure. How far do you want me to go back? Just kidding. (laughs) So I did undergrad at the University of Iowa, where I studied gender, women, and sexuality studies, as well as communication studies. And in both of those programs, I did a practicum that was centered around supporting um, individuals who had experienced harm or were experiencing hardship. For GWIS, my practicum was in Mitchellville at the prison that's there. Um, And they specifically, um, women are incarcerated there. And in the class that we did, one of the things that came up is how many of the women who were incarcerated were also survivors of sexual assault um, or domestic violence. And I think as we, we were doing like a 16 week, like healthy relationships course for the individuals. And I think once I started doing like math and I was like, wait, this percentage is, you know, quite high. Um, I got really interested in thinking about like domestic violence or sexual assault to prison pipeline. And that influenced some of the work that I did with communication studies. So once I graduated, I worked at DVIP. So that's local here in Iowa City, the domestic violence intervention program. And I did I volunteered there. I was an intern there and then I worked full time and then I worked on a special grant and that particular grant was addressing domestic violence. Um, It was centered around addressing domestic violence in black communities um, and then also doing some court observations and then from those observations, providing some education experiences for um, folks who worked within the justice system. So judges, lawyers, law enforcement, court clerks, you name it. Like if you came into the courtroom, I kind of wanted to talk to you. And then when I rounded that up, I actually moved abroad for a year. I moved to Kyrgyzstan. um, And so that's in Central Asia where the other stands are. And so it's like South of Russia, but like North of India. And uh, while I was there as a social justice educator and also helped some teachers kind of 
uh, I don't know, kind of unionized in a way. And they created their own kind of like domestic violence, like response team. And so I taught or I gave them some of the like tools that I had from the U.S., but then also lots of the tools that they have around like community care. And then I came back and I did prevention education at RVAP. And then that um, looped me into my current role as the coordinator for the Afro-American Cultural Center. Well, that is just an awesome journey. It sounds like you've been able to travel the world and all along the way, you've really positively impacted people's lives. For our next question, we're shifting gears a little bit. Um, a lot of public health workers tend to deal with systemic problems that are pretty slow to change. And especially with this pandemic, we've seen how a lot of it can lead to burnout. So with that in mind, how do you stay motivated and take care of your own health when you're doing work around heavy topics like rape, domestic violence, and other forms of trauma? For sure. Thank you. I think a couple things. I'm like pretty active, like uh, an able-bodied human who is like, I've played sports most of my life. My most recent, like, I don't know, the thing that takes up so much of my time now is CrossFit. And so I'm like very, very strict about going to CrossFit and when I'm going. Um, and so I have also encouraged like other friends to kind of get involved with me. And so it's like, oh, I have every morning at seven, I've got my little community here. And so that's one way. I think another way um, that I take care of myself is therapy. And so I am like a huge advocate for folks going to therapy when it's appropriate and accessible to them also creating like the community that you want to be in. And so one of the ways that I stay engaged in this work is thinking about making um, the world a place that I want to live in. And by doing work that will like get the world closer to like this, like ideal space that I'd like to exist in. And I think finally, one of the reasons I keep doing the work is probably thinking about folks who aren't invited to the tables that I get to sit at. And so um, individuals who don't work at an educational institution, right, um, who maybe never went to high, like went into to get a higher ed degree. And so thinking about like, what are ways that I can advocate for them, even though they're not here and may never come to the University of Iowa. Wonderful. Thank you for that advice. I think that it's very important, especially with COVID times happening. Burnout is a big thing. I'm also a huge advocate for therapy. I think therapy is a wonderful thing. And there's so much stigma around, you know, utilizing mental health services and things like that. So um, I constantly tell people that I interact with, like, if you feel like you need help, go get the help. People are there to help you. So one of the things when we were reading about your biography and some of the roles that you have, um, you work as a doula. Um, I think a lot of people might not know what a doula is. So can you explain what a doula is, what kind of roles they have, maybe in the birthing process, in the healthcare setting, or even in other places? And how have you extended your expertise in domestic violence prevention into this position? Awesome. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I am a doula. <clears throat> Excuse me. I... If I were to describe what a doula is, um, specifically like a birth doula, a birth doula is someone who assists the birthing person during their pregnancy, oftentimes. So during the pregnancy, of course, during their birth, and then a postpartum doula, someone who assists someone after um, they've had a birth. And so a couple things that I do want to mention is that like the a doula is there to advocate for the individual who is pregnant. And so there's lots of ways that that looks. 
before, before the birth happens, it's going to appointments with someone and that's going to appointments with someone, whether they want to have, like whether their choice is to birth the baby, um, a baby at the end of it, or whether that's to terminate their pregnancy. Right. And so going to appointments with them to advocate on behalf of them, if it, um, if you're a birth doula and you're attending a birth, uh, one of the things that you do is you are there to advocate for the for your client, which is the individual who is pregnant. And so I think one thing that I often hear is like a misconception is that like the doula might be there for, you know, for everyone in the room. So the other parent or the other support partner um, or, and the baby that will be born. And that's actually not the case. We are there to support the individual um, giving birth. And then postpartum doulas, uh, we often help folks after the fact, right? So one of the things that I often do for um, individuals who recently had babies is um, offer to, you know, I'll stay at their house two nights a week so that they can get some sleep. And then I'm up helping the baby, you know, either feeding them, changing them, um, just like assisting that parent so that they I am sure that you all know this too. Like once you have a, um, after you have a child, your life one changes forever. Uh, even if it's your fifth child <laughs> and, um, it's nice to have like extra support. And so I really enjoy that. If I think of, um, I also want to mention that I'm a death doula, which is like related in some ways and not, but I'm a, um, diaspora death doula. And so I assist individuals with like end of life goals, um, or families with, um, family members who have recently passed, um, and in a very similar way, right. Thinking of like, how do I center this individual, um, who is either on their end of life journey or, um, who has recently passed. So when I think of how my experience in um, domestic violence or sexual assault and being an advocate impacts how I show up in those settings. I really think of like consent and advocacy and like centering the individual. I very rarely go into that space and like, okay, big picture, this is what we'll do. Um, I really hone in on that individual and like what they need to like feel safe, protected, um, and most comfortable. Thank you. I, you know, I really never knew anything um, about death doulas. So I learned something today. I have a quick follow-up question. So maybe for someone who this being a doula sounds like the most awesome thing ever in the world. How does someone get trained to become a doula? And then also, how do you even find doulas? If you're uh, someone who is going to be in the birthing process or postpartum, how do you find a doula? Yeah, those are two great questions. Um, so if someone is interested in becoming a doula, there are lots of ways, there are lots of uh, ways to get trained. A couple that I would recommend, one is Dona. I got my training through Dona. Or I would recommend that they like seek out local organizations in their area that provide doula training. Excuse me. And just making sure that they're certified in a way that most fits the needs of what you'll be providing. And if you Google doula plus like the city or like major area you're in, you will find that. If you go to Dona, D-O-N-A, if you go to their website, they have trainers all across the U.S. and probably even some international ones now. And so you can really find a Dona trainer in most regions in the um in the U.S. I found mine right here in Iowa City by way of Chicago. So that was exciting. <laughs> and then I've done additional um, trainings uh, with a smaller organization down in St. Louis. 
in terms of if you want a doula, I would say something similar, right? I think if you're looking for a doula in Iowa City, word of mouth is probably the best way. The in my experience, there are some like Facebook groups for individuals who are birthing. Um, and oftentimes that is where I see folks asking. If you're looking for a doula and you're in the Iowa City area, asking your midwife or your like the doctor who will be assisting you during your birth, asking them for like any doulas that they know who have access to spaces. There are quite a few in Iowa City. I'm going to shout out some of my friends. There's the Iowa Black Doula Association, um, and they do amazing work and lots of education. And then there's also an individual I know, um, Grace. Grace's last name starts with an S when you're looking for her. And she is a phenomenal uh, doula um, and would be my doula if I was birthing. (laughs) So yeah, I think that there are resources in every community that will give you access to how to become a doula and how to utilize a doula for your own birthing purposes. I do want to mention um, in terms of the type of doula work that I typically do, I typically do postpartum doula work and I um, assist folks with um, individuals who um, are either terminating a pregnancy, had a stillbirth, or a miscarriage. And so those are typically the types of doula work that I do myself. Yeah. Well, like Alex, I really did not know that much about doulas before this conversation. So thank you for sharing all of that and take that with me. So getting a little more general, um, a lot of your work with the Afro-American Cultural Center, the way the Rape Victim Advocacy Program and as a doula seems to be focused on creating safe spaces for people. So what lessons have you learned about promoting these safe spaces that current and future public health practitioners could take into their communities? Awesome. Yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind first is thinking about letting whatever whatever the community is decide what safety and what safe means to them. And so I think of when I was in Kyrgyzstan, right, and I came with all these skills, you know, ready to save the world. And one of the things that I needed to do while I was there is like realize that like this country has been around for much longer than I've been alive, for starters, and that they've been keeping themselves safe this entire time. And so like they actually already have the tools like, right, I don't have to go in and save them. I maybe can introduce them to some new ideas or some new themes some um, different language. But actually, most communities have like survived, right? That's why we're all here today. And so I think that's like something that I have to constantly remind myself, even in the work that I do at the um, Afro House, like I've got all these cool ideas, but I'm not going to tell you all when I graduated, (laughs) right? And so like the current students need something probably different than what I needed when I was here. And so like really asking them, what do they need? Like, what um, what are they seeking? And not asking them because I need to like check off a box, but really asking them because I'm invested in making this like campus a better place for them. And then I think that I'll just wrap up by saying like, something along the lines of like, um, not assuming that I know what's best for them for any particular group. I only know what's best for me, right? Even though I'm a part of like the black community here on campus, that does not mean that I'm like, I know everything that's like best for black students here on campus. And so making sure that I'm bringing them into the fold, um, especially when we think more broadly, like, oh, people of color. And so folks will like ask like, well, what do people, I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm not sure, but this is what I like. And so just making sure um, that, that we're like asking folks like what they need and or what they desire, especially when it comes into 
especially when we're talking about like creating safe spaces. Yes, I think you bring up a really important um, topic, not just in public health, but in a lot of like social work right now. Um, you know, we see a lot of uh, racial disparities coming up and it's really easy, I think, for people to start to fall into that savior mentality. And that's a very dangerous thing. Like we want to make sure that we are empowering um, the vulnerable communities that we do want to help out. So I think you stated everything perfectly. Kind of talking also about some more recent events. We've seen lots of discussions about consent and then also rape culture in the media. Um, for myself, I know that we you can go on TikTok, for example, and there have been lots of videos of the protests about um, rape survivors and college campuses. Thinking about this topic of consent, what exactly does it mean? Why is it important? And then also, is consent just relevant in a sexual context or is consent applicable to almost everything in everyday life? Thank you. Um, so I think a couple things come up for me. Um, one, there's several questions in there, so I'm going to try to make sure I answer all of them. I think if I think about like what is consent, like very plainly, consent is like very simple and also not right. It's very simple and like it's an agreement to like engage in an act, right? In this case, it's an, it's a sexual act, right? Regardless of like what kind of sexual act it is. But I think some things to remember in terms of like what needs to be addressed when thinking about consent is one that consent is active, right? If I said yes to something yesterday, that does not mean that I mean yes to something today in anything, right? I like um, a very easy example is that um, I'm picky about eating meat. Some days I feel like a carnivore and other days I'm like a vegan. <laughs> um, and it's really just depending on what the weather's like and how I'm feeling that day, right? And so just because I want something today or wanted something yesterday does not mean that I'm like giving consent to it today. Um, and that's definitely the case in um, sexual spaces. Also, it's based on equal power. And so when I say equal power, like someone, it can't be like making sure like the power dynamics are addressed, right? So this gets like really power dynamics show up in all kinds of ways. And maybe it's something that I realize folks like struggle the most with in trying to like figure out what it means. Um, but a power dynamic could be like someone over the age of 18 and someone under the age of 18. It could be a older family member and a, um, a younger child. It could be a professor and a student, right? Like the, the end, one of the individuals has more power than the other person regardless. And so I think of uh, just like growing up, like with my mom, like if my mom told me to do something, I just kind of had to do it, right? Like, you know, the older you get, the more you'll like go back and forth. But, you know, as a kid, if mom says like, put this on, we're like, we're leaving at this time, that's what you do. And so, but we do that because there's a power differential, right? There was very few times where I was like, no, mom, we're doing this. Like, that's just not a thing that happens. And so the other thing is that it's a choice, right? Like a really good example of this is that I remember being a kid and they're being um, getting close to the weekend. It's Friday. I want to hang out with my friends. Um, and my mom would ask me a question like, you're going to clean your room though, right? And like, there's just an implied answer of yes, right? That is not an option. That's not a choice. And so a choice means that there needs to be like the option for someone to say no without there being like negative consequences, right? Like, oh, if you say no, I'm never talking to you again. If you say no, um, I'm going to be really upset or, you know, I'm my feelings would be hurt. Like there's got to be the option for someone to say no and there not be like any negative repercussions. And then four is that it's a process, right? Like we, I could 
you know, want something earlier in the week um, or want something, uh, uh, yeah, early in the week and not want it later in the week, I could in one relationship allow, um, you know, X, Y, and Z and in another relationship only want X, right? And so just like knowing that it's a process and that it can change over time is the, those would be the four things that I think you should know about consent just very basically. And then why is it important? I think very, again, very simply put, like it's important because we all deserve to live in a world that is like safe for us and that like we feel like we can show up as like our authentic selves. I very basically put like it having consent, especially in all spaces, like really makes it where we can all show up like as our best selves. And is it is consent relevant to in just sexual spaces? No. <laughs> I think that consent should be used in all spaces. I think when I think about like at work, before I go into one of my colleagues' office, asking them like if it's okay before I step in their office, if I need to talk to process like some difficult advocacy that I just went on or a difficult birth that I just experienced with someone, I ask my, before I ask one of my colleagues or before I just like, here's all this stuff, right? Um, I'm asking them like, hey, do you have like a, the capacity to like, like take on what I, you know, I need to process this really challenging experience. Like, do you have um, space for that? When I think about medical spaces before touching someone's body, before um, giving them like med unsolicited medical advice, right? There's some medical advice that I know is like required, like that, like I need to give you this, but the, also if it's not something, if it is like unsolicited, like thinking about like what that looks like when you're giving them that information, like, hey, would you like to know about these other options that are not part of your care plan? And then I think one of the ways that we can all start this like today is if you have younger siblings or if you have children, like thinking about before just hugging them, like asking them like a very simple, like, can, um, would you like a hug? Can I hug you? Even if they're in distress, right? Like asking that, like, giving them the space to like say what they asking them the question and then giving them the space to like verbally say what they need or want. I think I got them all. <laughs> yes, I think you did get them all. And again, that was just really good advice. Um, I like the idea of thinking about consent is kind of a dynamic process that you have to like keep checking in with yourself. It's not like once you have it, you're good. Like it's good to remind, it's a good reminder to just keep checking in about consent. So since this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we wanted to ask you, what can we do as public health professionals or as community members to become better advocates for domestic violence survivors? And are there any existing initiatives for domestic violence survivors that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think first, I, for starters, to like educate yourself, especially on the communities that you're in. And so like, what does, one, what are the domestic violent or like domestic abuse, like resources in our area? What, like, maybe if there are any statistics that are out there, what does that look like in our area? If there are ways for someone to volunteer, I think when I think of like getting act, like acquiring like any of these, especially like the resources. Therefore, if you um, happen to be engaging with someone who needs access to these resources, you're not fumbling to try to get these later, right? You already know, like, oh, we have a local domestic violence shelter here. They also provide outreach. They, you know, just like just the different like tiers of things that folks could potentially need. And then I would also say to support local efforts. And so if there is a um, domestic violence 
shelter in your area or any services that they provide, think about ways that you could support them um, directly and indirectly, right? I think, especially when I think of it being October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, thinking of like, what are some of the events and initiatives that they have going on? I know one of the things that the Domestic Violence Intervention Program has every October is Shop for Shelter. And it's like a donation drive at typically at the local Hy-Vee's that gets them their food for almost the entire year. And so it's a very important event for them. And so sometimes getting volunteers for that is important, but then also um, just getting folks to can like to donate to that, right? And it can be one thing or it can be 10 things, right? It could be on a budget of, you know, $1 to a couple dollars, or could, you know, if you have more money to spend and you can spend, you know, 20, 30, 40 bucks, like that's also like very helpful. Yeah, I, one of the questions that I always ask when someone, when this question is asked of me, one of the things that I um, encourage folks to think about is to think about how they've been involved, um, either directly or indirectly, in local DV or SA efforts. And if the answer is like not very active, maybe making it a goal for yourself to do like to become active in one way or another, even if a start is just like educating yourself on like what's available, right? I think folks are often very surprised to find out all of the services that Domestic Violence Intervention Program actually offers. And I think another way to, while it feels indirectly, it's directly support them, is to really advocate on behalf of them, like with local legislators um, and like even on the national level, right? They consistently are the first to get cuts um, when it comes to finances. And so thinking of just making sure that like the individuals that you are supporting are also like the individuals that you are supporting back ending domestic violence and addressing harm that happens to folks in your community. Thank you for all that advice on how to be a good advocate. I think being an advocate is hard. I mean, we have to learn a lot and you never really stop learning, you know, always can figure out different ways to be better and help out more efficiently. So to finish off, this is a question that we ask all of our guests that come onto the podcast. Um, sometimes I've heard that, oh, Alex, why are you asking me this cu- you know, kind of question? So the question is, what is one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Yeah, I think <laughs> mine would be that I could save the world. And I think, while I've not technically given up on that, I think I just shifted my focus, right? Like maybe I cannot save the world, but I can definitely change it and make it a better place. And that I'm not thinking of it in like this really big picture, but some days I'm just like, what can I do today that will like positively impact one person's like life today, which event, which is part of this world. Right. Um, And I think when I think of it just in that way, like what's one thing I can do today to like make the world a better place and like focusing on that, then like when I think about like the bigger picture, it seems a little more attainable. Right. It's like, well, I'm doing what I can to make this world like the best that it can be. And while that's not always in just the work that I do, you can do that in lots of ways. And so I think I definitely, younger me is like, I'm going to save the world. I'm, I'm going to end violence before, you know, in my lifetime. I'm like, okay, maybe I won't, maybe I won't be the individual who ends it, right? But I will go on podcasts with other educators um, to talk about like the things that I do in ways that we can all get involved. I will engage with my students. Um, in com- engage my students in conversations around harm reduction, engage with community members or local politicians around like, what are ways that you're going to make sure that 
those who are most vulnerable in our communities are protected. And so those are just a couple of the ways that I've like combated that like uh, saviorism or the like notion to save the world. Yes, I think that's a really great advice to end on, especially on a topic that's really heavy. And sometimes like, you know, in public health, we have these huge, huge problems. And yes, I also have fallen victim to that kind of thinking before too. Me too. (laughs) So, um, Shalisa, I wanted to first say thank you so much for all the hard work that you do um, as being an advocate for domestic violence and helping out people. And then also just another thank you again for coming onto the podcast. I know that we had such a great time talking with you. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Shalicia Gladney for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted and written by Alex Murrah and Anya Morosev and edited and produced by Alex Murrah. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.